I think the most obvious thing about those three texts is they don't seem to be about Joseph at all. You kind of get him in the story of going down to Egypt, but there's bigger stories about Joseph in the Bible. So I'm not exactly sure why this happened. I, I didn't have a chance to talk to someone who put this together and figure out what they wanted us to find here. But let me suggest that part of it is this. We almost, or we know very little about Joseph. We know that he was a carpenter. We know that he believed whenever the angels came to him and that he was a righteous man. And even before that, didn't want to shame Mary, even though he believed she'd effectively cheated on him. He wanted to not make that a public thing. Um, we know that he had other children, James and Jude, notably as being authors of scripture. Um, and that's most of it. That's most of it. History just kind of forgets him. And even in churches that want to laud the Holy Family, it is Joseph who tends to get the, the lower end of the ladder. Um, why is that? Well, I think it's because Joseph, as guardian of Jesus, is effectively his father. And because if you dig to the bottom of nearly every false religion in the world, they really are trying to get rid of the father of Jesus. And so at the end of the day, the ploy within false religion is always to demean the image of the father in your sight. What that means is that in life, fathers don't look like they get a lot of respect unless they demand it with violence. And no one really likes it when that happens. But that is the way it once was, once upon a time. And it may yet be again, I don't know. But what I know again is this. It means that the fathers who do good work go unsung. It means that the father who does his labor and does it without bitterness, but for the good of everyone around him, even when they don't necessarily return the love, as say Job found out, huh? well, that's not making it a bad work then. It's precisely a good work when it isn't rewarded, when it isn't sung about, when nobody sees it but you. You know who will see the best work of a father? The neighbors of the son when the son's in his 40s. That's who will see the best work of a father. Yeah? And so in that then, Joseph stands as a gleaming example of a quiet man who simply did the duty of raising a boy who just happened to be God and didn't get in the way. But instead, when God sent messengers, he listened. Like David listened to Nathan, right? And then didn't build the temple, as the other text talked about, but then heard the promise about the body, Jesus, who would come, the temple that men would destroy and he would build again in three days, all that good stuff. So we want to get into that today because that's what the texts are about. But I don't want to leave behind Joseph too much yet. Uh, the idea of guardianship is very important for us to reckon with, not only because of the issues with man and woman and boys and girls in society right now, but also because mastery or lordship isn't first or really about you and your kids or you and your wife or the king and you. It's actually about God and you. So God is your father. Well, that's because who he is. But if you can understand him saying that to you on purpose, it's because he wants you to see he is the ultimate authority, guardian, and protector of you. He wants that to be the image you think of when you think of who he is as almighty God. He is the guardian, the protector, and the authority for you. I'm going to dovetail into a random story that may not connect, but it kind of does. I've been rereading a book called Ender's Game. I can't recommend it for all people, but if you're a young man wanting to grow up in the world, it's a great sci-fi read. Anyway, um, there's a point at which this character, Ender, 
He's gone through battle school to be the leader of a space fleet saving the world from aliens. Okay, so you just kind of got to accept that part. But the trick is he has to be able to lead the fleet via voice talking to other commanders elsewhere and telling them where to move, seeing the whole picture from the outside, which none of them on the ground in the fight can see. And what that means is from time to time, he has to tell someone who thinks he should go forward, he should go backward instead. And that person has to believe and do it right away. And that's how actually modern militaries, American military tends to work. Most of this idea for the book comes out of the Marine Corps military doctrine. Um, but I think there's something you can see in this in terms of what it means to have a God who knows what's actually good for all of us. And who then from time to time says, you just have to trust me on this one. You just have to believe what I say. You will not get to see it now or maybe ever. And let me contest for you again. You will not get to see the father face to face ever. You will get to see him in his son, Jesus, who is the mediator, the one mediator between God and man, who has seen the father who no one has seen or, or ever known, but he has. And now in Christ, Jesus, he, he is made known not only as the speaker from the burning bush and the fiery cloud, but as again, this body to dwell among us forever as our, our king, our Lord, our guardian, our protector. Yeah. So Joseph and that simple unsung work of doing what is good for the son becomes an image of what God is for you. It's very important that you see that and you believe that. Now in this, the Romans text that we're really going to dig into here as best we can is about convincing you of just this in what you might call a dogmatic way or a very pointed way, a philosophical way. Paul is going to lay out piece by piece, logically, why salvation works the way that it does. Now, not all Christians need to understand this in the detail that Paul is going to go into. How can I say that? Well, honestly, some Christians die when they're two. Some Christians, when they're older, lose a little bit of their mind. Some Christians are born with certain handicaps that prevent them from understanding things we might understand. And they are still saved by baptism into Jesus. And they probably believe the results of what Romans 4 says more than the rest of us. Because I think intelligence often gets in the way. But for those of us who have the intelligence that questions and doubts and gets skeptical, Paul goes into detail here to try to convince you why salvation is by grace through faith. And in this, he points to this phrase again, the righteousness of faith. And I want to kind of zoom in on that before we get into it. Uh, righteousness as a word. I am young enough and now old enough to remember a time when all the people who were older and in charge at church told us that the words in the Bible were too hard for us, and so we should learn different words that were more cool. And I remember youth groups doing this to us and trying to make us feel like church was hip and all this, but none of it really took, none of it really stuck. Instead, what stuck was trying to be cool, uh, and I drifted away. But I also know that there were people who consistently through that time would point me back to things like scripture directly. That is, they would say, here's a Bible verse. You should know this one, Jonathan. And that through times of darkness, again, other Christians who had the simplicity of just having heard a verse and written it down and thought about it were able to help me on my path. In this way, again, if you want to be a thinking Christian, 
to know the Bible, you will have to get into the logic of it a little bit. And then from time to time, and this is where this kind of sermon is really good. I'm going to go through a big text with a lot of complexity, but you might be able to pull out one verse and like write it down and memorize it. And you're going to have in that verse, everything I told you today. You won't have to remember it verbatim. You won't have to go through all of Paul's little loopholes in the law. Instead, you can just know that what um, it comes through the righteousness of faith, if you like. Or perhaps something like, in hope he believed against hope. Uh, or in the presence of God, who gives life to the dead. All of those are powerful ideas you can take with you and you can say this week that will bring everything else that happens in this sermon with you. That's, that's how the faith will then inspire you throughout the week. That the words that go in that you believe now become the words you tell yourself later when the world tells you that different story that makes you angry and afraid and all those things. Okay, I don't know if I quite said everything I wanted to there, but I, I want to try to dig in now. This, this text is going to hook and dodge and weave like every phrase, okay? So I will try to, I'll try to go as slow as my mouth and mind will let me and, and not go, you know, uh, leave you behind when I turn the corner. So... Before this text, it is clearly established in, in Romans 4 that Abraham has been justified by faith. And Paul has presented this as the gospel itself. In this section now, he is defending his statement. So he asserted Abraham was justified by faith and God imputed it to him as righteousness. But now he's going to explain why, right? And we're getting into that idea. Here it is, verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through faith. Skip to verse 16. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. That's the big argument right there, okay? I'm going to do it again. God promised to Abraham that Abraham would have a son who would inherit the entire world, and it does not come by something the son would do it's going to come because God said it was going to happen. Does that mean Jesus didn't do any active obedience on the cross? No, of course he did many things. But what did he do more than anything? He trusted that God would vindicate him after they killed him. The great works of Jesus were not the miracles, but when he did nothing. He had all power in heaven and earth, angels at his command. He did nothing but believe that the Father would do something later. And then it happened. The righteousness of faith. I'll tell you, Jesus must, must have had the most incredible experience reading his Old Testament. Sometime around the point when his brain is starting to fire as like a young man, he's realizing he has an identity, he's different from mom, different from dad, all that kind of stuff. And he, unlike the rest of us, he figures out right away the Bible's talking about him and him alone. And he believes, and what, what a life this guy must have had. How alone he must have felt. There's, there's a reason he's called the man of sorrows. And yet with what perception and what confidence that every time he prayed the Psalms, he really knew what was going on the whole way through. Yeah. Now, again, his promise is that you get the benefit of all of that without having to do it or be it. By him declaring to you, you've been washed through his cross. Baptism with water is that promise in real time hitting your face. Name of Father, Son, and Spirit. You're back at the cross with Jesus. This meal, similarly, is going to feed that faith. It's going to continue to promise you, I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Yeah? So those promises, that grace, that's what this text is defending against those who would say, well, yes, 
It does say in the Bible, baptism saves you. And it does say that the Lord's Supper gives you forgiveness. And it does say that Jesus bought perfect forgiveness at the cross. But you still need to do something else to really be a Christian. And what they put in that blank is as far and wide as you can imagine. I mean, people put anything in that blank. At the time, they were arguing about circumcision, mostly. <laughs> no one argues about that one anymore. Well, actually, in corners of the Internet, they argue about everything. But point B, right? Man will put anything between himself and Jesus. Man will put anything between himself and grace, given the opportunity. And Paul is writing this text so the church would never be deceived. He even writes it to the church at Rome, kind of with a little irony, I think. <laughs> so the promise to Abraham and his offspring, let's slow down and before we, we go further than that, the promise is that Abraham and his offspring will become the inheritors of the world. Can you imagine this? I, I don't know what I'm going to get from my dad, a little bit maybe, not much. Uh, prince, I forget which prince, was it Charles or Henry just moved to British Columbia with his new wife? They inherit quite a bit, you know, these royals. Um, inheritance is a crazy idea. So now, you know, you're, you just, you're born and you're going to get what God gives you through your father. That's it. And you just get it. And if you're rich, you're rich. And if you're poor, you're poor. Huh? So now you're a poor shepherd named Abraham. And God says, your son's going to inherit the world. The world. We can't even picture that. Right now, we're afraid of like Twitter and Google controlling the world, not, not inheriting it. But catch this then. What did Jesus already do? He already inherited it. It's already his. And he's told us what's going to happen. He's going to burn all of it except for you and the other people he will call, like you, to himself. And then out of that fire, he's going to make a new one that's connected with his own body in miraculous ways. Oh, goodness. Inheritors of the world. Don't go past the gospel too fast when it's in the text. The promise that Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, we have already tried to establish or state that righteousness of faith means God speaks and you believe it. This is the natural state of man created. We fell away from it. When he sends the preaching of Christ risen from the dead out of the world, he brings us back into it. And by that spark that gets a fire going, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, we walk in the desire to have more and more of this faith our entire lives. That is righteousness. It doesn't seek itself, it seeks Christ. Having found Christ as Savior and knowing I'm not good enough, we're also free to see those around us, rather than always trying to lift ourselves up to prove something to God. That's what the law teaches you to do, is to always try to do something more. You know how this goes. You feel bad, you make a list. You try to keep the list so you can feel good. You don't keep the list. You feel bad. That's what Lutherans mean when we say the law. It's a natural problem. It happens everywhere and anywhere. Paul happens to be talking about a very specific law that is the ceremonial, ritual, and code law of the Old Testament. Leviticus, think of that. But by the time he's done with this argument, he can't really just be talking about Leviticus. He actually says that the law, the law brings wrath. And this is, a, again, a philosophical idea, a logical idea that when we get to it in the text, I'll talk about it. Um, but it, it can't just be about some goat's blood in a corner, although there definitely was wrath there. But that law that was given at Sinai is a type, a picture, an image of the problem. It doesn't matter how clear the directions are, you're going to worship yourself instead of God. 
And that's going to create problems in the world around you. The law then only brings wrath. I tell you to do good, and you're only going to do it for yourself. And you're only going to think you're better because you did it. That's the point he's driving at here. He's going to keep coming back to this. The idea that the law is more than just the list from the Old Testament. It's more than just the Ten Commandments. It's the fact that we're fallen, and even God's good word about what we ought to do only kills us. Only kills us. Okay, keep going. There'll be more of this here as we go. So, 14, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. That sums it all up really well, right? So, if you're going to get saved because you did something, then you're not saved by faith at all. And any promise wasn't really a promise, right? If you pay for your birthday gift after someone gives it to you, it's not a gift. So it has to be a gift because it's a promise. That's that's the way it works. And if you were to try to undo that, you're rejecting God himself. You undo his words, which can't be done. That's verse 14. Verse 15, again, is this idea I mentioned before, though, and it is the most perplexing section of the entire segment. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, I've looked at this More than once in my life, I was just looking at it again in Greek before the service, and I'm still not confident really what's going on in the second part of the verse, where it says that where there is no law, there is no transgression. I know how Lutherans are supposed to teach it, and I'm happy to tell you that. Um, That is that uh, our minds as fallen humans don't really even know there is any wrong until there's a law about it. So until someone points out to you that something's wrong, you don't feel bad about it. And in fact, this even the beginning, nobody even felt bad about murder until after it happened. It had to happen first for it to happen. And the law had to come into existence for the wrath to be there. And what does this mean for you now? Again, nothing more than what I said before. To know that in your spirituality, you're not going to be saved by what you do, ever. And that you have in your flesh a tendency to want to think that, And so you're going to build up little idols of saving yourself throughout the day. Little ones, not big ones. And sometimes they'll work. Sometimes they won't. They'll collapse. But throughout all of it, what you don't want to be is deceived by them. You want to face them for what they are. And especially, again, I've I've said this before. I'll say it again. When you find yourself angry, when you find yourself afraid and anxious, if you've got the time, and you don't always, I understand. But if you've got the time to find out what you're angry about, or what you're anxious about, you know you found your idol once you found it. And I've told you this before. Mine's sitting right here. Ask my kids how often I lose my phone and what my temperament is like until I find it. It's pretty pathetic. I'm get, am I getting better, kids? Say yes, please. A little. Oh, a little. A little. I'm about to throw the thing in the water, you know? It's just like, eh. Anyway. I'm working on my conscience through that. You don't have to join me on that particular crusade. Yeah? But the idea, again, is what is causing your duress? It's not God. It's some other thing in creation you've put in the place of God. And when you try to make it the law by which you see goodness, the law by which you achieve, it is bound to bring instead wrath. Wrath. Now, when I say wrath, I want to emphasize this. I don't mean like fire from heaven on your house, necessarily. I mean in your conscience, the wrath of the law is a conscience that's never clean. You always feel like there's more to do 
You cannot rest before God, even though what is this? What is church? It's rest before God. It's supposed to let your conscience be free. That you walk out jubilated, not because you're happy, because there's nothing behind you. All there is is the future in Jesus, yeah? That's the rest of the gospel that the law cannot provide, cannot provide. All right, so verse 16, he says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. So if you have to have like the argument, why faith not works? Because God wants to save by grace. And if he saves by works, it's not by grace. It's, it's kind of elementary, right? And yet this is what the fight between us and the Roman Catholic Church on paper is about. This is it. The whole, well, the Pope too. The, but it's about this is where they zoomed in. It depends on faith so that it's by grace. That's Paul's assertion here. Um, and be guaranteed to his offspring. So the idea of uh, God's word being a promise means that it's more than just one of our statements. It's a guarantee beyond all guarantees. Not only, he says, and notice how quickly the idea is dodged left and right. It's hard to follow the phrases in a straight line. He dashes off to say that this gift, back of 16, is not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all, same sentence, still going, as it is written, verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations, dash, new idea, different sentence, incomplete sentence, in the presence of the God whom I have believed in, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Again, I don't know quite how to bring this across since it's not a direct thought, but it's like he's trapped. I do this when I talk to you. He gets trapped in his own language and he's writing it down and it's clear enough as ideas, but it's more like a poem where he's just shouting words. God raises the dead, right? Um, uh, where did it go? He calls into existence things that are not. He just throws that on the end of the sentence. But the point of the sentence is to extend the idea that salvation depends on faith. It depends on faith that it may rest in grace. That means if you happen to be a Jew who keeps the old covenant law, that's great. But it is the one who shares the faith of Abraham, not the works of Abraham, circumcision. And so Abraham is the father of all those who believe what Abraham believed, which is, remember, Jesus will come from his body. And as this is written, here's the promise that Abraham was given. He didn't have Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He had, I have made you the father of many nations. But in that promise to Abraham, he had salvation in Jesus. Now, can you see how today it's not sufficient just to believe what the Jews believe, like Abraham, that Abraham is the father of many nations? Can you see how after this has come to pass in Jesus, to reject Jesus is to reject this promise? And to try to keep this promise without Jesus is kind of backwards? That's why we pray that the Jews would be converted to Christ their Savior and join us as Christians, and indeed throughout history, a small remnant of Jewish people do often believe. In fact, I, we have one member here who has uh, Jewish blood, uh, too, in fact. Uh, in any case, the point is not blood so much, again, as what you believe. What you believe. And the promise given to Abraham, on which the entire Bible says, is that many nations, many ethnicities will be ruled and reigned and saved out of his body. And Christ, we know, is the fulfillment of this reality, so that when he arises and says, go into all nations baptizing and teaching, you can hear the overlap of this very same language here, yeah? So from there again, he just, he spouts doxology and he quotes this text 
Um, we'll kind of leave it behind and not try to deal with the grammar, uh, but don't miss that the God who Abraham believes in is the God of resurrection, the God of resurrection. Christians are a people of the cross. The emblem of our faith is the crucified Christ, but we are a people of the resurrection because of that cross. We don't look forward to our cross. We carry our cross toward the resurrection that we have assured of in Christ. So when Paul calls him the God who raises people from the dead, this is a big deal. This is like the heart of why we're here. And then to see that that means to call into existence things that do not exist, I think is connected to the whole reality. He's talking about faith here. The God who gives life from the dead for your body on judgment day is already giving new life into your body via his Holy Spirit through faith alone in the words that Christ is risen right now. And in that hope that is believed for you against the hope of this age, you have indeed Abraham as your father. And you, St. Paul, are a tribe among the many nations that trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, so you are of those of whom he says, so shall your offspring be. Now, before we go on our way here, we actually have quite a bit of time if we wanted to. I won't make us go too long today, but I want to give us a little more of the text that follows. So if you do have your Bible, you can just keep it open. I'm switching from ESV to NKGV because I'm switching resources. So uh, if you are following along in your Bible, you might notice that as well. Uh, so let me find the spot here. <clears throat> Verse 19, the same idea considers can, continues that Abraham, what we want to hear is Abraham is believing an impossible promise. He's believing an impossible promise. And not being weak in faith, it says, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, verse 22, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So again, righteousness of faith. It all comes home there at the end of chapter 4. Why was Abraham's faith commended? It's because the promise that was given to him sounded impossible. He's 100 years old, his wife's 90, they've never had a kid, and she has passed her monthly custom many years ago. They can't have babies. But God comes to him, I don't know how, in a dream, and says to him, look at the stars. You will have that many babies. And Abraham believed it. How? I mean, that sounds harder to me than resurrection, honestly. Jesus' resurrection, crossing the Dead sea, Red Sea, those things are easier than this. This is, this is bizarre. It's a miraculous birth that isn't a miraculous birth <laughs> all at the same time. But that's exactly what he did was he got what he got. You get, you're baptized. You get, take, eat, this is Jesus' body. He got, I will make you the father of many nations at 100 years old. He believed it. And then that was counted to him as righteousness. Everything else he does in his life, he makes a lot of bad decisions. Lots of them. None of them are seen because what God sees is the promise that God made to him and him receiving it. And again, the more you can transpose that over your reality, 
get off the ladder of spirituality and stand upon the free grace of the ship that is Christ sailing through this sea of darkness, the better off your hope's going to be. You'll be able to hope against hope because you'll know the true hope of life everlasting in Christ. I want to read verse chapter 5, verse 1 here. We're going to skip down a little, but chapter 5, verse 1 is one you should highlight, memorize, all that kind of thing. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'm going to do all that more slowly. Therefore, and because of everything we just said, having been justified by faith, that is, having heard from God that he justifies, he righteousifies, he saves you, period. Having heard that, believing it, we have peace with God. You don't feel like you have peace with God? It's just because you don't believe it. It's not about feeling. It's about believing it. You have peace with God. The warfare is ended. He's not against you. You ask, why is he doing this to me? He's not doing it to you. You're doing it to you and not seeing how much good he's given you to trust in him that he'll bring you through it to a new resurrected body. But everything you lose in this life is returned a hundredfold in the life to come. And if you can see that a touch, again, well, for me, I'm, I'm this much less angry about losing my phone than I was three months ago. And over time, though, it's that clawing forward of the desire to bear good fruit that will help us together love each other more. If you're always looking at your neighbor to check their fruit, oh, they weren't quite doing their prayer journal the way I does, I do, that kind of thing, that's problematic. We don't need that here. But we do need you to check your fruit. That is, oh, I talked to that person and I didn't even pay attention to them. Maybe I, should, I didn't even hear what they said. I should go say hello again and talk. That kind of good fruit. Oh, we need a lot of that here. Yeah, and a lot of that, thinking about other people. You can do that because you have peace with God. You know you have been justified. You know there is nothing between you and Jesus Christ. And so through Jesus, you have access by faith to the grace in which you stand. You know who your God is. The rest of the world comes and worships something in fear, hoping it will come to pass. You come because it has already come to pass. And now establishing that truth, you get to walk back out of the world being a gleaming example well, of one who has been woken up from the dead just a little bit, a little bit early. Rejoicing in that hope of the glory of God. Yeah, that's the last day. The last day that Christ will return, seal up all things as our guardian and master, and enable us to live in this, this paradise to come, which, again, I could talk about that forever, but I'd want to get another text to do it. So for today, I think we will go ahead and just remind you one last time. He is risen. That means you're paid for. And that payment makes you immortal, immortal now. And he won't be long anyway with regards to this world. So for now, use this world for what it is, knowing it's gone, and look forward to him coming, knowing that the water seals it, the food is going to feed it, and that that's what makes us church. That is Christianity. In the name of Jesus, amen.